It's Tuesday, June 10th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So our top interview today is about the recent mass shootings. Which one? That is the saddest question ever, isn't it? Well, the interview was about the mass shootings in Las Vegas and then the one in Georgia a couple days before that and the fatal shooting on a Seattle campus, same day as the Georgia shooting. We taped our interview at 11.30 a.m. You'll hear it in a minute. And about an hour afterward, there was another fatal shooting, this one in Oregon. We need to take the phrase mass shooting and add a mass to accurately describe the age we're living in. We're living in an age of mass, mass shootings. And I'm here to tell you what can be done about it. The answer is nothing. I mean, I'm going to follow the advice of an expert we had on a few weeks ago. I'm not going to name the shooters in today's interview. I'm not going to contribute to their legends. Will that prevent it from happening again? Almost certainly not. Let's be clear. Let's be practical. Let's be real. We have chosen this situation that we're in. Or maybe it was chosen by others or thrust upon us by history or powerful lobbyists or the realities of our political system or the indifference of your fellow citizens or the failings of the human race. After Sandy Hook, there was a bill before the Senate and it died. It died after getting a decent majority of votes, 54 votes. It was actually 55 votes because Harry Reid had to vote against it for parliamentary reasons. But it was less than the 60 votes it needed. So that's politics. But the politics was baked in into that bill beforehand, that bill would have been, at best, a tweak of a tweak. It would have allowed for more background checks for online or gun show sales of guns. And that's it. It doesn't change much. Another bill to limit magazine size also went down. Large size magazines haven't been factors in any of the recent spate of killings. None of the laws they were debating would have made the U.S. as strict as California, where an angry young man killed six innocents last month, three of them with a knife. I consider myself an optimist in general, not on this issue. We have too many guns and that is not going away. This is a choice. This is what happens when that choice is made. It is a necessary consequence of that choice. Recently, Vox's Ezra Klein authored a compelling and very pessimistic set of projections about global warming. And the Atlantic's Ta-Nehisi Coates said the best thing about this. He said, journalism isn't a pep rally. So I have no good news about mass shootings, gun deaths, madmen on a rampage, victims who don't even know they're killers. We have no choice but to live with that. Yeah, I recognize the irony of saying live with that. So what I can do is cover that issue, but also bring you an interview with a young author and end this show with a spiel about the consequences of driverless cars. All that stuff is part of living, too. And so is this. Here's Adam Langford, a criminologist and homicide researcher. Four days ago in Forsyth, Georgia, an anti-government adherent to the so-called sovereign nation movement attempted to lay siege to the courthouse. He was killed by a sheriff's deputy before he could carry out his plans of occupying the courthouse. Days later in Las Vegas, a deranged couple attempted to pull off something, quote, bigger than Columbine and start a revolution, killed three people and themselves. The website of the male shooter was chock-a-block with gun rights and anti-Obama memes and affiliations. So, of course, these two and a few of the other shootings that have been proliferating in the last few weeks have been described as a twisted extension of some aspect of our culture. 
I'm going to quote Charlie Pearson, Esquire. Let's not kid ourselves, he names the Georgia shooter, is a product of more than his own psychosis. He's a product of a conservative movement that has lost its moral bearings, a gun culture that imbibes paranoia the way some people drink iced tea, and a media infrastructure from Roger Ailes' media empire through the poison from which Clear Channel and other media conglomerate profit, all the way down to the guys broadcasting on shortwave from their root cellars in Upper Michigan that enables and encourages and empowers armed political paranoia and does so for the cheapest possible reasons for political power and corporate profit. Well, let's talk about this with Adam Lankford, a criminal justice professor at the University of Alabama. He's written about suicide bombers. He's written about mass shooters. He's examined the difference between the mass shooters who live and the mass shooters who uh, kill themselves or are arranged to get killed. Hello, Dr. Lankford. Hi, uh, nice to speak with you. Do killers have this rage and attach themselves to an ideology, or in some cases, does the ideology foster the rage? I think it's more of the first. People who are suicidal at first and also homicidal, they often want to latch on to something that's bigger and more important than themselves. And often they're looking for someone to blame. They're in deep pain and, and they want to blame someone else for that rather than blame themselves. The ideologies that are out there sometimes just are something they can cling to and say, aha, um, the government or the IRS or women or whatever else it may be are the root of my problem. And therefore, by attacking them, I become part of a, a broad movement and I'm actually important for the first time in my life. So let me take an example where that seems hard to do. Overland Park, Kansas, a uh, member of the KKK, a deep anti-Semite kill some people outside a Jewish center. They're, they're not even Jewish. But it seems odd to say, no, let's not look at the overall trend of anti-Semitism. Let's not look at the anti-Semitic websites. Let's not look at this, you know, bubbling undercurrent. Let's just look at mental illness. Or do you think that's what we should do? You know, certainly there's nothing wrong with reducing hate speech that's out there. I'm all in favor of that. But one of the uh, kind of useful comparisons we might be able to look at is cases carried out by essentially Islamic fundamentalists mm -hmm. who committed mass shootings in this country. Like Fort Hood, 2009, there have been attackers at the CIA, at the Empire State Building, at the Los Angeles Airport and elsewhere. You know, my sense is there are a tremendous number of people who essentially support the tenets of Islamic fundamentalism. And when you think about it, that essentially becomes a constant. So if we have thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people with these views, what makes these very few attackers different? My research suggests that what makes them different is the mental illness. Is the mental uh, illness, yeah. And the desire to avoid the consequences. So maybe the criticism of the radical ideologies that these crazy people and murderous people attach themselves to is, please realize that you're going to have a small set of people who are necessarily going to take it either too far or, you know, maybe in some cases only slightly too far, and kill people. You have responsibility for that. Sometimes my sense is that with certain ideologies that these attackers claim, we blame the ideology. And with other ideologies that just seem too crazy or too rare, then we blame the attacker. Yeah. So, for instance, the Columbine killers, one of them was fascinated by Hitler and eugenics. He wore a T-shirt that said natural selection on it, like this idea of killing inferior people. The Virginia Tech killer uh, you know, claimed to be attacking in part for religious reasons, to inspire generations of weak and defenseless people. But we didn't really blame the, the religion or the ideology in those cases because it just seemed too absurd. Yeah. 
Um, But when it's an ideology that seems to be more widespread, uh, anti-government sentiment, Islamic fundamentalism, then maybe we're more scared of that ideology and quicker to blame the ideology itself. Is the case of the Virginia Tech shooter, I mean, were there aspects to it that really were was he as motivated by his ideology? Was the ideology as coherent, if you want to call it that, as, you know, some right-wing hate groups that have inspired other shooters? I mean, maybe there are reasons why we don't blame the ideology in some cases. Like, not only does it seem too insane, it's not even, it's just, you know, a construct. It's clearly the construct of a diseased mind. Right. Well, there certainly um, is variation in terms of the mental health problems and the suicidal desires and the coherence of these various types of mass shooters. Uh, in the Virginia Tech case, he specifically cited Jesus Christ, though. I mean, he said, uh, quote, I die like Jesus Christ to inspire generations of weak and defenseless people. Mm-hmm. The irony there is he was using very similar rhetoric to the rhetoric uh, used by Islamic fundamentalists who just assert um, Muhammad and or Allah instead of Jesus Christ. Why doesn't the presence of those groups and the fact that so many are, are out there, you know, even if they're not in mass culture on the internet and so forth, why doesn't that act as a valve? Why doesn't someone like the Las Vegas shooter say, I have all these anti-government thoughts, but look, here are some other like-minded individuals, and, you know, that could satisfy him. Why does that, in fact, in some cases, act as an accelerant and not a pressure release? I guess I have a couple possible answers. One would be a lot of these attackers are pretty socially inept, whereas you know, the best thing for them to do would be to meet up with other people, perhaps. So the irony is, if you're part of a, a radical group, you may be less likely to do this, because the people who are doing this are often so socially isolated and marginalized. So, so I think that's one element. And then the other thing is the general kind of scientific literature on catharsis suggests that maybe it doesn't really exist. In other words, venting online doesn't necessarily work as a pressure release that, you know, if you yell at your kids, that makes you more angry. They kind of stir themselves up into a fury. Is there any way that you see of breaking this cycle and ratcheting down these number of incidents and attempts at outdoing the last killer? I think, you know, the best chance to reduce these types of attacks is to be more aware and kind of more proactive when it comes to people with suicidal desires and who are unstable. The U.S. Secret Service did a study about a decade ago that found that 80% of school shooters told at least one person what they were planning. You know, ultimately, these are attacks that are planned in advance, and that means that they should be much easier, actually, to prevent than than crimes of passion or escalation. Adam Langford, criminologist, studies mass shooters and suicide bombers at the University of Alabama. Thank you so much. Sure, thank you. Take care. So usually you don't want to just read the blurb of a novel to set it up, but man, this blurb, it just grabs you. Check this out. One day, 12-year-old Skylar Brooks is with her mother when her unknown powers break out and harm many people. And so it's up to Skylar's best friend, Ginger Nook, to find out what Sky's trigger is. And here's the line that hooked me. Especially with an army trying to get the trigger too, but for evil reasons. I am pleased that the author of the book, The Trigger, 
Audrey L. Hinsdale joins us now in the gist. Hello, Audrey. Hello. What was your inspiration for writing this book? Well, I'd always kind of been interested in, like, witchcraft, but, mm-hmm. like, and I've seen a bunch of different shows, like, showing different kinds, and I've read about it before. Okay, now at this point, let me pull back for a second and tell you a couple of things. Number one, Audrey's 11 years old and a first-time author. So we wanted to investigate our powers here at The Gist to promote books, to boost sales. So we picked Audrey's book, The Trigger, because we thought a sales increase would be really readily discernible. You could track it pretty well. All right, back to Audrey. There's a bunch of books like, that portray different like kinds of witchcraft. The book is really anti-witch. Are you anti-witch or are you pro-witch? I'm kind of pro-witch because uh-huh. I kind of like like being that magic thing like that idea of wow like what would it be like to become something different Mm -hmm. like being able to make things do what you want them to do and that's a great joy of writing not only could you imagine it you could make these imaginary things actually happen yes in your own world of the novel yes i like creating different worlds but i also like experimenting with the real world Now, do you know what a metaphor is, Audrey? Yes. Of course you do. Do you think this idea of witchcraft and just having suddenly finding out that you're a witch, is that a metaphor for anything in your mind? Anything that a young person might be going through? It's kind of like getting, like, a crush on somebody. Like, oh, what? It's just kind of something that springs up on you in a random time. Are there things in your own life that you feel are maybe a little bit outside your control and maybe writing about them in a book gave you a feeling of control? I have a very bad temper, Mm -hmm. and so I get angry really easy, and I can't control that. And so I start yelling at people who don't deserve to be yelled at, and sometimes I just have to go to my computer and write about something. I mean, that's an escape, and a lot of authors talk about that, but I'm getting more at a feeling of control. Like, you feel a little out of control in real life, but because you control the universe, you're the god of your novel, the goddess, right? That could give you some empowerment, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I can go around, like, if I ever doubt myself, Audrey, you wrote a book. You, You can do something. You finished this. Yes, the very act of completing this book. It's a great accomplishment, yes. right? This sometimes, that's why people run marathons. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you ever heard someone talking like that. <laughs> I know if I did a marathon, I could do whatever. Is there anything in the book, any spell that someone went through or an obstacle that someone had to overcome that in some way uh, came about from what you were experiencing in real life? And it could be, we talked about a metaphor. It could be maybe a metaphor for what you were experiencing in real yeah. life. And it became a part of the book. Like, before this year, I had some friend problems, people who suddenly turned on me Mm -hmm. because, um, for no reason at all. But it's kind of different because instead of me trying to, like, heal it, I had to control it. Yeah. Which is kind of like a mix of what Ginger and Skylar is going through. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I can kind of put that into my writing. So you, so Ginger is trying to help her friend Skylar as you were finding, you went through some friend problems and friends were leaving you. Interesting. Huh. Um, how are Amazon sales going? Um, they're going good. I mean, mostly friends of my parents. One or two people that I'm not very sure of, but I think they'll be going good, especially after this. Oh, yeah. We hope to give yes. it the gist bump. Do you know how many books you've sold on Amazon? Eight. Books. Are books cool? Books rock. Okay. Books <laughs> are rock. You a, do a lot of kids in your school think that? No. <laughs> like, some of them do. Yeah. But, like, some of them, they're just like, you know, I'm reading because 
I'm here, and and I'm just like, books rock. Could you read a little bit from the book for me? Which part? How about when they mention the magic kangaroo? All right. <clears throat> Chapter one: the way she was. First, there was the old Skylar, plain old Skylar McCabe Brooks. The old Skylar was sweet, nice, and funny, with a wild talent for baking pies. She could do anything she wanted to, or she would at least try. She was a natural comedian and the teacher's pet in all classes. Best of all, she was my best friend. Me and Sky would run around town and watch the salesmen sell their goods, like the crystal balls and the amazing goblin ears. We would connect her father's old skateboard to the bottom of refrigerator boxes we found in alleys, and we would push each other down the sledding hill in her backyard. I would take her bird watching in the forest behind my house, and we also held a dance party together, only inviting the dogs of the neighborhood. My favorite part was running around the witch houses, pretending to pick up the lollipops and gummy bears off of them. Everyone knows those are just fairy tale stereotypes. We would laugh and eat whatever we wanted to. We would pretend to be just like the late Queen Drusilla. We were best friends, BFFs, you might call it. Not anymore. That's good stuff. Audrey L. Hinsdale is the author of *The Trigger*, available on Amazon. She's written some uh, short stories in fourth and third grade, but this is her first novel. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you. And now the spiel. After comedian Jimmy Mack was killed and his friend Tracy Morgan was seriously injured in an auto accident, Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, tweeted, driverless cars are a moral imperative. I don't know, maybe. They actually just seem a far way off to me. And I think that they will represent a psychological setback. So the twin inclinations of our society are inventing devices that allow us to do less and reclaiming activities that enable us to handcraft what was lost to automation. Dishwashing machine, meet artisanal pickle maker. Electric garage door opener, meet avocational taxidermist. The automobile is not aptly named. It is the interaction of man and machine that transports us, literally and figuratively. Driving is not a passive activity. Riding is the passive activity. Driving carries with it a sense of accomplishment, romance, and lyricism. And I do mean lyricism. And I do want you to think about what the driverless car is going to do to music. Yes, Prince can still sing about his... And Kanye can go on and on about his bends. They ain't see me cause I pulled up in my other bends. And his other bends. Last week I was in my other, other bends. But the best songs about cars aren't about washing them or being a passenger in them. They're about driving them. And all these songs will have to be amended. From the Beatles. Baby, you can drive my car. To the boss. Don't you cry. Ah, yes, the boss. Whole hours of his 14-hour show will have to be changed, footnoted, redlined. Redlined, meaning the pen mark, not the RPM gauge. Bruce, bowdlerized. Born to have someone else run. Being raced in the streets. The magic rat had his sleek machine driven. None of that works. And then there's this one. What do you do with this one? Try your eyes, little 
drive all night from the river. Bruce stretches this thing to 12 minutes in concert. Think about how much work the E Street Band is going to have to do to bring this song up to date when we go with the driverless car. By which he means he will be driven. We now know that is not true. I swear I'll travel now. It's just a metaphor. I travel now. Give the boss artistic license. I swear I travel now. The driverless car is going to gut song lyrics. People will no more write about cars and driving than they will about riding in elevators. Aerosmith, one song, B minus. I can find one small, small silver lining in the impact of the driverless car on song lyrics. When no one is able to drive, it will obviate the need for Sammy Hagar to ever tell us that he can't drive 55. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Celeste, you know, the past two days I have compared Andrea and Andy to food. I know why this happened. It's because there was an article written about me that started with a lengthy comparison of me to a sandwich. That article is on our Facebook page if you want to see what flavor of sandwich. But it is uncomfortable to be compared to food. So let's change that up, shall we? Producer Andrea Salenzi has got a 69 Chevy with a 396 Fuley heads and a Hearst on the floor. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was last employed behind the counter of the Route 60 Bob's Big Boy. You can subscribe to The Gist in iTunes or by using your favorite podcast app like TuneIn. We are the Slate Daily Podcast, but if you subscribe to The Gist specifically, that's great and that helps us. We have an email we want to send to you. The place to sign up for that email is slate.com slash gist email. Our email is the gist at slate.com. My heart's wood. You're a carpenter. Thus proving a Springsteen lyric can be as clunky as a Suzuki sidekick. And thanks for listening.